Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. On today's show, I talk with Susan Album, the people-focused venture capitalist. Susan is still actively working in her second act, but I found her career story to date, which she tells in three chapters, to be highly relevant to those of us who are thinking about switching careers. Susan started with two rounds at McKinsey, where she honed core skill set in basic functions. While she enjoyed consulting, she knew she wanted to go deeper in a specific function, which began chapter two with Susan as an operator. During that chapter, she found a love and calling for all things HR and people, which has led to a different turn as an operating partner at the VC firm Renegade Partners. Today, Susan advises startup founders on how to grow and build the best teams because she believes that great employment opportunities and outcomes create great financial returns. She's also a thought leader in the field of people, writing frequently on LinkedIn and Twitter, as well as for other publications. On today's podcast, she talks about how she's pivoted through her three chapters and offers terrific advice for how to think about employment trends and retaining people in this hyper-competitive market. Susan, welcome to Third Act. It's great to have you. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks, Liz. It's great to be here. Where are you today, physically? I'm in Boulder, Colorado. So I'm in my home office that is off of my mudroom and kitchen in Boulder. Now, did you move to Boulder during the pandemic? Funny story, I did not. I had lived in Colorado about 10 or 15 years ago, met my partner here, relocated to California, always had intentions of moving back. And we happened to have just gotten very lucky on timing and moved a couple of years before the pandemic. The pandemic has certainly normalized not living in the Bay, which has been nice. You're a leader in talking about that, uh, about separating sort of location and compensation. And just maybe to get right into it, talk a little bit about your thinking on this topic and whether or not the pandemic has changed that at all. Yeah, so so I think what's interesting about um, the pandemic or what's, what's very obvious to us is that it's decoupled location from knowledge work and an ability, I think, to have a high growth, ambitious career. It used to kind of be, oh, you're leaving the Bay or you're leaving New York. You know, what are you going to do about your career? How do you feel about leaning out? And I think that's just not the case anymore. Um, It's really normalized not being in one of these major metros. And so what that's now led to is just geographic dispersion of talent really across the world, but, um, you know, in particular across the U.S., And so in terms of compensation, what then happens is you have knowledge workers in particular who want to live in places like Boulder um, or other, you know, historically lower compensated towns. And a lot of employers saying, you know what, in this market where talent is so scarce, if I can get someone to fill this role, regardless of where they are, I'm no longer going to discount their salary because of where they live. So it's not just actually the pandemic, it's coupled with an incredibly hot talent marker. So that demand side, and then the supply side, just refusing to live, you know, in larger numbers in in, uh, coastal high cost cities. My career at Accenture, I mean, we definitely had pay bans by city. And, you know, it was markedly different uh, cost of living. And we were very said on that, like, you know, if you move from San Francisco to Indianapolis, 
you know, you were not necessarily taking a pay cut, but you certainly weren't going to get a raise. And I really like the thinking around sort of working is working regardless of where you're at. I think large, large employers still may find the cost savings that they can get um, from having those kinds of pay bans, like what you experienced, compelling. But where I spend most of my time, which is in sort of sub 1000 person organizations, the differential is just not big enough anymore across a smaller employee base to warrant it. And in this competition for talent, that's why a lot of them are throwing these pay bands out the door when it comes to um, geographically determined pay bands. Yeah. So going back a bit to ground our listeners sort of in your first act and your background, you went to Duke, you got a degree in economics and a minor in Japanese. So what do you think you're going to do with those degrees coming out of college? I was always a pretty quantitative person. And so for me, economics was just the more, the most practical of the degrees that were sort of quantitative in nature that I could find at the time. I, you know, didn't, I grew up in, in Washington, D.C. In, in Maryland. I didn't have any models for engineering or computer science. Like that wasn't what my parents did. It wasn't what um, parents of friends of mine or adults in my life did. So I just didn't have exposure to, you know, what would have been other sort of more quantitative applied degrees. And so econ was the obvious one. It was like math, but I can apply it to my understanding of the world and how markets move or how organizations are run. Um, So I think for me, the general surmise was always like something in business, but it, it was not, I won't pretend that it was more specific than that. What about the Japanese? Japanese was a bit of a, an odd one. I was lucky and studied Japanese in middle and high school. Duke back then still required a foreign language and not just sort of one semester. You had to have sort of advanced understanding um, or, you know, three classes or more or something like that in a foreign language. And I already had a foundation in Japanese and I just liked the department. It was very small. So it was my like little micro home at Duke um, in this very, very small department with other Japanese minors. Um, So for me, I'm not going to lie, Japanese, by the time I studied it in college, was a bit more of a hobby and more of just something pleasurable and fun. It's like me and Russian. I the same thing. Middle school, high school, college. Spoke fluent Russian by the time I got out of college and then did nothing with it. But interesting to talk about. So just moving on, you had two rounds at McKinsey and I love what you told me that round one was good and round two, maybe not so good. What happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, let's start with the good. You know, I you know, didn't quite know ever what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I had this sort of vague hypothesis that it was something in business. It was something fairly analytical. Um, And I think for someone like that, getting to do McKinsey straight out of college is kind of a dream job. And I, I would recommend it almost universally for those, you know, young early career folks who are ambitious or interested in business and like don't quite know what else, (laughs) don't quite have more refinement on top of that. And that was really exceptional, the kind of exposure and the kind of people I got to work with. I I couldn't have asked for a better learning environment. I think the challenge with going back my second time, one was a location challenge. Um, I was in the Bay Area, but my MBA had been sponsored out of um, the East Coast. And that was just problematic. The second was, you know, a life meld. But when I was 22... And straight out of college, it was exciting to get on a plane or to go travel or to, you know, really immerse myself in a particular subject, regardless of what time of day it was or which meals I did or didn't eat because I was just kind of cranking at work. When I was, I think I must have been 28 or 29 when I went back after business school, 
you know, I was married. I had a social life in the Bay that I cared a lot about, um, that I'd been cultivating for a few years. And I didn't really want to be a partner at McKinsey. You know, some of it had to do not really with anything about McKinsey that I would point to, but just my own circumstance and goals and alignment changing. You know, ultimately what it came down to was I still had this notion that I was going to be a generalist in business somehow, but now I, I knew I wanted to probably do something in tech, probably where I owned a P&L. And I looked at the, the types of projects that I was doing and I just didn't have high conviction that two more years at McKinsey was going to get me closer to those ambitions. In fact, I was worried it might move me away from it or that I could sort of accelerate those ambitions in another way. And this is something where like I give, you know, coaching to founders on, which is really, really asking the candidate, why? Like, why is this the right job for you? Why now? How does this align with what you're trying to achieve? Because that when that alignment is broken, and for me it was, that can lead to problems. What's interesting to me, because I'm also a consultant, I mean, that you had the clarity at that age to leave consulting when you did, which I think is great because I think sometimes people stay too long and then they miss out on some of the the operator opportunities that they have. One of the things that I, I love so much about your story is, is that you described to me in your career to date in sort of three chapters, each which builds different skill sets. So let's talk a little bit about those chapters because I think they're really instructive to our listeners. So what's chapter one and what did you learn in chapter one? I tend to orient all of these sort of chapters or phases in careers around hypotheses, hypotheses that you have about yourself or about an industry or about a market or about a function and its relative interest to you. That's sort of how I've organized my understanding of my own kind of professional experience. So for me, again, chapter one goes back to not quite sure what I want to be when I grow up, but it's probably something analytical and something in business. And when you know that about yourself, but you really don't know a lot of other things, to me, that led to a very obvious drive to collect fungible skills. How do I learn things that are going to be broadly applicable, regardless of my ultimate destination? And so that was, you know, where I spent my time was a couple years at McKinsey. Um, you know, these are executive presence skills and problem solving and client service and, you know, business analytics and, you know, how do large Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies even work, make decisions about strategy or M&A or whatever the case may be. And that was, that was a little bit of it. Um, I then spent three years in private equity um, as an investor, also actually working with a bunch of ex-consultants. So they had some similarities. And it wasn't that I was so deeply, like, had strong conviction that I was going to be a private equity investor. But at the end of the day, it, it again, it came down to how do I continue to learn really fungible skills? To me, you know, this private equity forced me to, to get even stronger on my analytical and financial skills, forced me to think more deeply, not just about, you know, the company and its macro environment, but the micro, you know, is this a team that I want to invest with or, or alongside? Do they have defensible systems or processes, customers, and so forth? It was just sort of continued work. I'm mean, actually very similar in some ways to the kinds of consulting work that I was doing just applied in a, in a little bit of a different way. And then I had an MBA, got an MBA. So that, that's kind of what I would call chapter one is she doesn't know what she wants to do when she grows up. So, um, you know, let's get a lot of skills. Pick up fungible skills. I think that's great advice. So chapter two, you become more of an operator. And what'd you learn in this chapter? 
Yeah, I mean, I think chapter two, you know, I I was really lucky. I think you made an observation that some consultants, you know, stay too long at the party. I think having at the consulting party, I should say, and, and kind of delay moving into operating roles. I think what was helpful about going to Stanford was I had a, operating was a normal thing to do. A lot of ex-Stanford people were starting startups, join, you know, joining startups as early employees or going into operating roles in technology. And so that was just like an obvious example or alternative. For me, you know, I, I continued to kind of go along my path and think, okay, I'm still not quite sure what I want to be when I grow up. But I think, you know, being in a high growth tech startup our tech environment is going to be a, a good fit. Like, I think I'm going to be able to take the things that I've learned, work with great people, you know, move the needle forward, have impact, and so forth. And so that's where I spent my time. I went first to a startup that eBay had just acquired, then kind of to the mothership at eBay. Um, I was then recruited by Uber and kind of moved earlier stage startup. And for me, I gravitated towards roles where I would get to own the P&L or, you know, own some kind of a cross-functional team. Again, it comes from this continued self-knowledge of, I don't really know how to specialize, or maybe I just didn't want to specialize. It sort of went from, I don't know, to I don't want to specialize. (laughs) A good self-aware as well. Yeah. Um, And so those are the kinds of roles that I really gravitated towards. And in some ways, it was kind of like chapter one in that I was sort of continuing to kind of build these fungible skills as now a business leader working within the context of, of a tech company. Somehow you got, you got attracted to being a people lead. What drew you to that? Oh, that's a great question. That's sort of, I guess what I would call chapter three. So I was at Uber and was very fortunate to have been invited to be one of the first GMs of the Uber Eats business, which was very hard for a while until it, I don't want to say until it wasn't, but things just started to click in 2016 in particular and into 2017 as we built the business. Um, I had great people who I was working with, um, folks on my team, people who had initially been hired as individual contributors, but now were managing teams and leading teams. And I found myself as the general manager of this business, you know, no longer working quite as much on sort of experimentation of how we can get this business off the ground because it was off the ground, but much more focused on how do I enable this organization, my little corner of Uber to thrive? What are practices that I can put in place to support really good feedback at at scale? How do I maintain a high bar on hiring? How do I build a culture that, you know, this team really wants to stay part of? during this, you know, a pretty crazy time in Uber's growth. And that was sort of some of my first thinking. I think simultaneously at Uber, I was exposed to great recruiting and great recruiting at scale. I mean, Uber, you know, had borrowed some of the Bar Razor program, which is pretty famous at Amazon. It had been brought over to Uber. Not everything was perfect, but like we were maintaining a very high bar and moving very fast in a, in a competitive hiring environment. And so I was sort of getting exposed to HR, I would say, or culture building, kind of the, the organization building internally. But then I was coupling that with some knowledge around recruiting. And then I ended up moving into a cross-functional business leadership role at an early stage startup where HR ended up being part of my portfolio. I think you told me you built pretty much all of it, right? The, a lot of the HR functions, recruiting, did a lot of that from sort of the ground up. 
onboarding. What else did you mention? Yeah, when I went to that startup, um, originally, you know, and I think this comes to alignment is a really interesting thing. I was, I was hired to be the VP of ops and finance. And I, you know, I was very focused on all those pieces, but when it came down to it, I think about half of the company was reporting to me. And so what, because I had also a large hourly workforce of drivers, employee drivers and customer support reps at one point, our um, commercial kitchen ended up reporting to me down the line. So fairly big teams. And I had, you know, more salaried folks on business intelligence and so forth. And so like ultimately, again, to me, the realization I think was that people are going to be the enablers of success. And so I started like leaning in and, and sort of doing HR without a lot of permission to do so. But, you know, that's kind of the way it goes when you're a startup leader is, oh, there's a problem to be solved. I'll just go figure it out. And so first it was on recruiting, which was taking a lot of what I had learned at Uber about great recruiting at scale, playbooks, cases, how you get, you know, six different people on an interview panel to each play a part such that you actually evaluate candidates consistently, fairly, and hopefully end up with the right hire for your organization. I just started doing it for my team because I didn't have recruiters. We didn't have sourcers. We didn't have recruiting coordinators. So I was all those things plus the hiring manager. And I figured, let me start modeling this. And so I was probably overly you know, overly documented, but I would like document these two page, you know, hiring plan docs for each role. And then I would circulate them among other executives or other parts of the organization that I wanted to be part of the hiring panel. And it was sort of modeling and doing that work um, that was a piece of it. And then another piece was we had this large hourly workforce, really wonderful, really driven, and a very competitive labor market. This was down in Mountain View you know, in 2017, you know, 18, 19. So, you know, Uber, DoorDash, Lyft, everyone was competing for hourly employees or hourly workers, as the case may be. And so I had to kind of take a pause and try to try to articulate to, the, to our teams internally and prospective team members, this is what employment looks like. This is actually what compensation looks like or benefits. Total, I wasn't calling it total rewards or using all of the HR jargon, but that's what I was doing. Or this is what a career path looks like. This is how you might go from being, you know, a frontline hourly driver to being a shift supervisor or moving over to customer support, um, or even having, you know, classes sponsored by us, whatever the case may be. So I just, again, I just kind of started doing HR without calling it that. And that's ultimately what led me to kind of find my professional home in that arena. Eventually, you end up at Zoom as the VP of Talent and People Ops. How did that come to be? That was that role. So my first, correct, yeah. So I originally had joined Zoom as, as again, this VP of Ops and Finance. And that's where I ended up migrating and sort of morphing the role into HR. Okay, so one of the things, you know, you are still pretty young. You're still kind of quasi in your, uh, what I would call second act career, but you've made a big pivot to go to venture capital. So how did that happen? What t- Talk about that. And how did you find Renegade Partners? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe from the outside, it looks like more of a pivot. For me, it was actually really organic and natural extension of the work that I had done at Zoom. You know, at, at Zoom, which I was there 
in all the, in these different leadership roles from about 30 or 40 people up to about, you know, 500, 600 and through capital raises of over 400 million. That's what at Renegade we actually call, we called it the super critical stage of growth. This stage of growth where you start out with some early customer love and early exec team, and you really need to build sort of the organizational underpinnings that are going to enable you to scale. And so it kind of like, I think from the outside, again, looks like a big pivot, but but it, it felt more natural to me. The How it actually played out was, you know, I found my professional home at Zoom in the HR function. And I was like, oh, I love this. You know, I've sort of been dabbling. I've done marketing or BD or um, run sales teams, you know, ops teams, all different things. And HR, I think this is my calling. I feel great about this. And like lots of, I don't want to say overachievers, but call it lifelong learners. I felt a little bit of FOMO for not having found HR sooner. You know, I sort of was like, oh, I didn't grow up as an HRBP in Google or I haven't, this isn't my third HR gig. This is only my first. How am I going to expand my learning, my understanding of this function, like how to be, you know, a nuanced leader in this space. And so I started doing a little bit of CEO advisory work on the side, frankly, as, as a hobby almost. And so, you know, as soon as my title on LinkedIn was switched over to HR, I got lots of inbound from recruiters. And in some of those conversations, I said, listen, I'm not looking for a new job. I'm actually quite happy at Zoom, but I would be happy to connect with the CEO if you think I can offer any valuable counsel. Um, you know, I'm in this role now. So maybe, you know, there's a fruitful conversation to be had. And in a few cases, I ended up sort of building relationships with founders directly and advising them. So that was happening. And then my now partners, you know, Roseanne Winchek and Renata Contini were thinking about leaving their venture firm and starting a firm very focused on this exact stage of growth and some of the exact challenges that I was working on. And, you know, over the course of many months and lots of conversations um, that were really wonderful and really important in terms of building alignment, it became very clear that we were sort of radically aligned in how I was working, thinking about the function, what they saw as missing went from their vantage point in, in cap tables and as investors. Um, and that's why I was, I was essentially, you know, the first hire I started on day one when we did a, a when we raised our first fund last year. And I love the premise of Renegade that creating great employment outcomes creates great financial returns. I totally agree with you. So if I ran my own company and I had a board of directors, I think I'd get a very distinguished HR person who really understood the landscape as one of my first board members, because I think, especially now, people are, are your most critical assets. So give us a couple of examples of how you see the sort of link between great people and talent to great financial returns in some of your portfolio companies. And what's your role in, in working with the portfolio CEOs and getting that done? Yeah, I mean, if you zoom it all out to why is the organization here and what does it want to achieve? And then you sort of, so if that's the highest sort of level thought when you're looking at an organization, and then you sort of keep keep zooming in and zooming in and zooming in, ultimately it comes down to people. It comes to who, who's the who, and how do they work together, and, and having the right goals for sure articulated. But even just having the right goals is a function of having, you know, a credible leader standing in front of them or working together to create those goals and rolling them out and so forth. So it, to me, um, it's such an, it's just such an obvious linkage. Some of the more specific ways that it can come out are, do you have, again, like structured hiring processes, some of those that I borrowed from Uber. 
that are rigorous, that help remove bias, that help um, create more predictable outcomes in a very unpredictable process. Um, that's one piece. Another piece is, do you even have a compensation and benefits architecture that makes sense in the crazy, rapid changing market that we're in? You know, are you putting in place people programs that are mostly going to, you know, unlock the behaviors that you want and hopefully, you know, not take up too much time and not create, you know, too much organizational overhead because you build out some clunky process. It's those kinds of things that I think really create the scaffolding that can, again, I think, create both of those two things alongside each other. As you look ahead, because you're really on the forefront with the portfolio companies, what other trends do you see, especially as we're coming out of the pandemic? And if I'm a listener and I'm in HR or a hiring manager, you know, what should I be aware of or what should I start thinking of to be prepared for the next sort of 12 to 18 months in terms of hiring and retaining people? So let me start by just throwing out some things that are big trends that I think are here to stay or will persist. So remote work or either whether it's fully remote or remote inclusive is a phrase that I heard recently, which I do like. And what does that mean? What does remote inclusive mean? Um, it means an, building an organization that may have offices, it may even have a headquarters, it may have hubs, but that is very pro-remote and it wants to make sure that its employee experience, both from you know candidates all the way through onboarding and someone working with someone on an ongoing, you know, being an employee on an ongoing basis, is very you know remote. Individuals are, are sort of first class citizens, so to speak. Okay, so you can do do it either way. You can either come in or be remote. It shouldn't matter. It should be transparent from a worker perspective. Yeah, and there's subtleties to all these, but remote inclusive generally means not only are we remote, like not only are we remote tolerant, but we're going to create processes that actually make remote easy. You know, and hub and spoke model, not hub and spoke, excuse me, hub models where there's like multiple little offices. Maybe you have one in you know, Denver near where I am, or Austin and New York and SF, and then there's remote as well, layered on top. There's all these different models, and I think what's here to stay is that there's going to be all these different models, and very few of them. Very few of them, I think, are going to be headquarter heavy, headquarter dominant, headquarter only. And by the way, that's there are good reasons to do that. There are hardware businesses where you really need to have um, the bulk of your employees in the office. There are credible and reasonable reasons to pursue that. The challenge that those companies face and where I think it becomes less tenable over time is their access to talent. Um, so in this very hot talent market, right, where I am an employee who lives in Boulder, Colorado, if I encounter a company that only is is open to my employment in New York, I'm just going to say like, okay, well, I'll, I'll find one of the many, many, many other employers who are totally fine with me living in Boulder, Colorado. It didn't, it didn't used to be this way, right? Like specific jobs and specific companies and opportunities were very tied to specific cities. And I think enough of the market has moved such that you know, talents, access to alternatives is so high that those who don't offer that will have a harder time attracting and retaining talent. I know it applies in tech. What about other industries? Insurance, banking, CPG, do you think they'll be as flexible as some of the tech companies? Or have they caught that buzz? I think it's going to be, it depends. So, you know, tech, I think tech is certainly on the forefront here. And it's also where I spend my time and have expertise. So I won't, I won't pretend to have deep expertise in some of the other industries that, that you mentioned. But if I were to look at sort of how trends start and spread, tech has been on the forefront of different kinds of HR practices 
And so it may take longer and the adoption may be slower or in um, smaller pockets, for example, like you could see a CBG company, you know, maybe they're like, you know what, FP&A, finance planning, you know, that doesn't have to be at the mothership, at the headquarters, we're actually okay with distributed and sort of looking at it on a bi-roll type. My guess is it'll happen, but it won't happen quite as fast or in such an extreme way where there's companies such as you know, GitLab that just went public that is fully distributed. As far as I know, it's the first fully distributed company to the public and what happened in the last couple of weeks. So uh, yeah, so my, my answer is adoption, yes, and trends, yes, uh, probably slower and in, in silos and pockets. What about... Um total rewards. Any trends you see there? That's another one where, you know, total rewards for non-HR listeners, um, you know, is compensation and benefits and anything else that's related to sort of your total package of, of, of work. Um, so it includes vacation policy or parental leave. It includes your cash, cash pay and any variable pay and your equity. All that stuff falls under total rewards. I think actually sort of segueing from the earlier point that, that you and I just discussed about remote work and that trend, you know, if you look at parental leave, for example, you know, that's something where that good parental leave has caught on and like sort of is spreading fast, right? It's not, and so tech still leads the way. You know, and that came from mostly fin companies in particular. Google was out there early. I'm not sure of Apple, but Google, Facebook for sure. Some of the bigger tech employers had by far the most generous parental leave packages. And then it caught on rapidly. In the past, I'm talking only like two to eight years. I'm not even talking about decades plus. Um, and such that now good parental leave is becoming even the norm in the early stage companies that I support. Um, where, you know, you have companies of only 40 or 50 people and they're saying, we want to have, you know, excellent parental leave. What does that look like? Yeah, same way with the companies that I'm on the boards of. We have really good parental leave programs as well. Exactly. Like, And we should. That's always been a baffling one to me. Like, you know, people have to have children. Otherwise, the species dies, right? So, yeah, it's just nutty. I don't mean to sort of go down a total... Um, wormhole on parental leave. But I think that's another interesting example of a trend that was niche initially sort of 10 years ago and be- has become much more mainstream and has really pulled up a lot of other employers such that it's much more normal to talk about. And now when you see employees, if you have an employee who's competing, you know, maybe they're that FP&A employee and they could go work at a CPG company or they could go work at a tech company. The benefits that they see at a tech company may start to pull the market elsewhere as different parts of the industry, different parts of the economy have to compete for the same talent. And then you asked specifically about total rewards. One of the things that I see, you know, again, is decoupling geography from compensation. We already talked about that. Just accelerating pay packages. Again, I think because of the scarcity of talent and the amount of capital in early stage tech companies, you know, salaries are high and getting higher at, at an accelerating clip right now. What else? Benefits. People used to talk about like the benefits arms race, again, in regards to sort of the Googles of the world pulling up the market. That's not happening across the board. Um, you know, it's normal, again, for like a sub 500 person company to talk about a fertility benefit, a parental leave benefit, mental health benefit. I think one of the things that's concerning to me a little bit on the benefits side is some of these are employers, you know, filling the social safety net. Um, you know, in the US, where we don't have guaranteed, you know, parental leave in most of our country, um, where it's not really good, you know, we have it, you know, you know, it doesn't offer full pay or it doesn't offer as many weeks as as um, would be ideal. 
you see employers backfilling there. You know, I was even in a very strange conversation during the fires last year, um, some of the wildfires in Colorado um, and California and elsewhere, where a bunch of HR leaders were talking about, like, what should we do for our employees? And, you know, when you zoom out, and I'm not saying it's bad to ask that question, but I'm saying it's concerning from a societal point of view um, when you have employers trying to backfill, you know, what should we do around national disasters for our employees? Usually that's something that you would expect the public sector to be filling. Or COVID. Or COVID, yeah. COVID's the even more obvious. (laughs) I mean, so many companies have really stepped up. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. That's and you know the debate over the Biden infrastructure plan and around all that. And we won't get into that here. But it's just, you know, as a working mom, it's just to me, it's still mind-boggling. It's like, how can the U.S. be so far ahead in so many things and so behind in this? So I loved one of the things you had on your LinkedIn, which is your too long, didn't read summary in LinkedIn. And it says, I'm working to make work better, more fun, more meaningful, more successful, more equitable. So what do you consider your greatest success with regards to this ambition today? I mean, some of it is even having the conversation. It's very, it feels like my role um, has been really normalized by, at Renegade in particular, no, no CEOs who, you know, if we're looking at investing in their companies, they never balk at, at talking to me. In fact, usually they're like, oh my gosh, I would love to talk to Susan. Maybe I can problem solve something with her. And I really, you know, I haven't been in venture for that long, but I'm not sure that that was necessarily the case 10 or 15 years ago. And, you know, the, the feedback that I hear from founders is, oh my gosh, like this, this advice is super critical. It is, it is so important during this stage of growth and it's appreciation, it's engagement, it's vulnerability. Um, it's a true desire, I think, to solve some of these problems and to make employment great. And maybe, by the way, that has to do with sort of the founders who we gravitate towards and who gravitate towards us. Like there may be venture back founders who, who don't care so much about employment outcomes, but the ones that we spend a lot of time with really do. Um, and I think that that feels good. It feels like there's good work to be done. I think in terms of some specific work, I'm really, you know, proud of some of the pay equity work that I put out there last year. Um, some pay equity playbooks and a couple of pieces published around just fair pay and how to do that and how to even do it as a very resource constrained org. That's to me like at the bottom of sort of Maslow's hierarchy, if you want to use that kind of a, a comparison, if you can't look at an employee, right? Totally agree with you on this. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. If you can't look at an employee and say, I am confident that I am paying you fairly and that that has nothing to do with your race or your gender, your status as a veteran, whatever, I'm only compensating for truly compensable reasons. If you can't do that, how can you really expect much of your employees? And so sometimes it's kind of pulling founders down to that foundation. And I think fair pay, along with a few other things, definitely belongs in that foundation. So I'm really, that's very gratifying. I also like it as a, you know, quantitative person who started out with an econ major and in pretty analytical functions, you can measure pay equity. And so I really like that there, there are quantifiable ways to look at the scorecard here and see um, if, if good things are happening, whereas some other things in HR can be a bit trickier to measure. Years ago, when I first, when Accenture was a privately held company, we were a partnership. And, and I think this is still true of other big four companies. The partners all got a list every year of, of, you know, sort of how many units every other partner had and the unit had a value to it. 
And it was always the same day every year and people would rack and stack and all. But, but you knew exactly how much everybody was making. And, you know, as one of the very few women in the firm at that point, I could see that I was being paid fairly. You know, I was being paid exactly what the guy next to me was being paid because there were only X number of levels. There was no discretion. And you write in your article about eliminating the discretion. And then we went to a public company and there's a lot more nuance because we have so many different rules, but that discretion got introduced. And boy, once you get in there, and I've been sitting in some of those, I've sat in many of those conversations and I can see exactly what you're saying is, is you know, the discretion does pay uh, play a factor sometimes, right? In maybe even call it unconscious bias and, and figuring out a way to take that away is a good idea, you know, in terms of pay equity. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so what's in chapter four, Susan? There's definitely starting to be that itch and that desire and need to contribute to society and to try to make sure that not only am I helping build great employment outcomes um, for our renegade companies and the CEOs in my orbit, but that some of that work also can be leveraged among you know, things that hopefully create a really great planet, whether that's nonprofits or education or climate. And so just thinking about, you know, where I spend my time, I've been talking with someone recently about generosity and what is generosity? What does that mean? And for me, my scarcest, the scarcest thing that I have right now, I'm very fortunate, I have scarcity in my time. Um, and so to me, are there ways that I can be generous, um, you know, with organizations and helping build the kinds of organizations that I think are good employers or that achieve their goals? And just kind of zooming out the aperture a little bit might might, might have something to do with it, but I, I'm not sure. It's something it's something I've definitely been spending you know time and effort thinking about. I I volunteer with an organization here in Colorado that's focused on helping underrepresented individuals get access to tech careers, um, not just careers in tech, but technical careers. So it's a it's a nonprofit coding school, and I love that work. It's a very similar to the work that I do at Renegade but just in a different context. So that's some of it. Um, and I, I'm not sure we'll have to regroup when, uh, when I get there. Yeah, you'll have to come back. So I almost named this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet. What aren't you done with yet? Oof. Um, I mean, you're kind of never done with the people function. I think that's one of the reasons why it frankly has burned out leaders recently. Like there's sort of, there's been multiple articles about chief people officers retiring and you know pulling back from the HR function you're kind of never done, right? Because it has to do with human beings and all of our complexity and our nuance and the market's changing so dynamically and every organization's changing so dynamically and each individual's changing dynamically. And I think that that dynamism can can leave the job feeling unfinished. And I think some of the trick that I've found for myself personally you know, is, is being pretty prioritized and really focused with our CEOs, with our founders on what's really going to move the needle for you now. And then let's take all that other stuff, all the shoulds, and let's move those shoulds off to the side for a bit. And I think that that's helped. But kind of the, job, the job's never done because it's just a complex world we're in. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining me on Third Act. You know, you're a prolific writer, both on LinkedIn and on Twitter. So we'll provide all those links in the show notes. And as I said, you know, you kind of, it's a bit of a masterclass, if I will, you know, on some really interesting HR topics out there. So for those of you who are listening who are managing people or in that function, I very much advise you follow Susan and go out and read what she uh, has written. Where else can people find you online? LinkedIn, Twitter, anywhere else? 
those are the best spots. That's kind of the the amalgamation of, of all the stuff. Or just reach out to us if, uh, you know, especially if you're founding a company in, in this stage where we spend our time at Renegade, we'd love to problem solve with you. Great. Thanks so much, Susan. Thanks, Liz. Appreciate it very much. Have a great one. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.